Good morning. So my name is John Horning, and I am not on the staff. Once upon a time, I was. I was the youth director here a few years ago now, but I've come back again, and I'm looking forward to sharing this morning with you, and I'm looking forward to ushering you into the new year. And specifically, the thing we're going to be discussing today is we're going to be talking about God's design for work. And the reason that this is such a helpful thing to talk about is that depending on how many hours a week you work and how often you spend sleeping, work is going to take up either a bit less than half of any given week or well over half of a given week. And that means that if you can take this area of your life and you can submit the way that you go about to God's intentions, then a large portion of your life will have on its own been submitted to God's intentions. So that makes this a very good target for improvement. There are very few things in your life that if you get better at them, they have such a wide influence as if you're able to get better at your job. And depending on who you are, your job might be different things. You might have a full-time job, but then there are also things that would certainly qualify as your occupation, even if you're not going to a nine-to-five. Things like if you're raising kids. Things like if you're a retired person, investing in those who are coming up after you. These are valuable things that certainly qualify as your occupation. And so this is going to be a message about how do you take what you busy yourself with and submit that to God's intentions. So I want you guys to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And that's what we're going to be looking at first. And I'm pretty glad that you guys have spent the last few weeks going through Genesis 1 through 3. And one of the little side notes to make with this is that you're going to find that Genesis 1 through 3 consistently is one of the core passages for almost every theological issue. Genesis 1 through 3 is the most relevant section of the Bible for the vast majority of theology. And so having an understanding of how the story began, it's going to keep coming up again and again. And this is no different. So in Genesis chapter 2, the first thing I'm going to do is just take a look at verses 5 through 7. I want to introduce you to this discussion. And it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was a mist, or and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Additionally, if we go past that to also look at Genesis 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. So before God creates the man, you see that part of the reason that God is creating the man is because the earth has need of someone to work it. And after the man is created, the first thing that happens to the man is he is given his task and he works. And the reason that I'm bringing that up is that work existed before the fall. As you guys know, in Genesis chapter 3, All of mankind falls because of the sin of Adam, and one of the curses that is a result of that includes the pain that exists in labor. And although work frequently feels like an exclusively negative and hard thing, that's actually not the case. Work exists in a perfect world, and work will exist when we get to heaven. 
And so that on its own should be something that primes you to think, okay, if work is nothing but a drudgery, then maybe there's some way I can go about it to change that. Because work is actually a very good and positive thing that God includes in his creation for our blessing. And so the first point that we're going to be spending most of the time on today is the fact that work itself is spiritually significant. And it's not just that work existed before the fall, but I'm going to give you guys a dive into why work existed before the fall. The fact that work is a part of a perfect world is on its own already a significant thing to think about, but we can know more than that. So I want you now to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And the first thing that I want to bring your attention to is that this is the first creative act. And in this act of creation, this is God bringing the entire universe into existence out of nothing. But because you guys have read Genesis chapter 1, one of the things that you are aware of is that that is not the only way that God creates. God could have just walked onto the scene and then said, let the world exist and have a fully formed, fully functioning earth just pop into existence with no intermediate stages and no intermediate work but that is notably not what he does. At this point in creation, what you have is you have the earth fully encased in water, and one of the reasons we know that is because in one of the later days, God gathers the water into one place to let land appear. But the first thing God does is he creates out of nothing raw material. But then if we go on in verse 3, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. And in that, you see more of the ex nihilo creation. You have God creating light, which did not previously exist, but you also see God's second form of a creative act. Specifically, you see that God is categorizing and naming things. That God isn't just creating things out of nothing, but he's taking what already exists, drawing it into categories, and giving those categories names. And if we go on, we see a third kind of creative act. Because in verse 6, And then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And in this situation, you have the earth, it's totally encased in water, and then God takes some of that water and blasts it to the edges, and he leaves some of the water on the surface of the earth, and then later he draws that water into one place. And if you're familiar with the rest of the chapter, then you're going to know that a lot of God's creative action is not just categorizing and naming things, but it's forming that pre-existing material. Like a potter working with clay, he's taking what he initially made and he's moving everything where it ought to be so that it's able to properly accomplish its functions. And he continues doing that. And if you know Genesis chapter 2, then you're aware that all of the birds of the sky, all of the beasts of the field, and even we ourselves were made out of dirt. 
God, God didn't speak us into existence. He formed us out of something pre-existing, and then the woman was made out of a man's rib. So in similar fashion, formation out of a pre-existing material. And so the thing that I want to point out is this. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, and let's look now again at verses 5 through 7. And I'm not going to read it, but I want you to glance at that And notice, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no plant of the field had sprung up, God plants a garden that he puts the man into, and he has the man work that garden. Here's my question for you. Who was the first gardener? God. The first gardener was not Adam. The first gardener was God. God's the one who planted the Garden of Eden. God's the one who, would, who was watering the whole face of the earth when Adam was only able to work one small portion of it. And so I'm going to phrase that same question again in a slightly different way. When Adam was tending to the garden, who did Adam look like? You can call that out. God. When God made Adam, puts him in the garden, and then has Adam work the garden, Adam looks like God. And in Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 26 and 27, we see that God specifically created mankind so that we could bear his image, that we actually have a purpose in our very existence, and that purpose in our existence is to look like God. And so with those three forms of creative activity, I don't know about you, but I can't speak things into existence. It's never quite worked for me. But I've categorized and named things, or I've been taught names and categories that someone else had created, and I've also formed things out of pre-existing material. I'd be willing to bet that I'm not the only one in this room who's done those things. Am I right? Well, okay. Let's take another look at Genesis chapter 2, because in verses 19 through 20, we see this. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And so again, not only is Adam tending to a garden after God was first tending to some gardens, But in Genesis chapter 1, the person that you see naming and naming and naming is God. And then in Genesis chapter 2, God brings Adam along, not just to aid him in forming things out of pre-existing material and tending to what's already there, but also to categorize and name things. That in Genesis 1 and 2, you see the birth of taxonomy. And that's significant. Because the point that I want to make with you is this. Or before I do that, I like to imagine personally Genesis chapter 2 like a blacksmith. So you, in a blacksmith's shop, you might have a blacksmith who's working his trade, and eventually there comes a day when the blacksmith brings his son into the shop, and at first the son is just carrying horseshoes from here to there. And eventually he teaches his son how to light a fire, how to stoke the fire properly. And then maybe one day he takes his son and he holds a hammer and he says, now son, watch what I do. I'm going to move this metal. And then another day comes when he hands the hammer to his son 
and he guides his son through the process. And eventually you get to a point where this blacksmith shop is being run by the father and the son, and maybe 10 years down the line, the son gets his own metal and he folds it just so, and he hammers it out just so, and he grinds it and he polishes it and he puts a handle on it. And he goes over to his dad and he hands him this knife, a testament to all of the things that the father has taught him until now. And the father looks at this worksmanship and he says, that's my boy. The satisfaction, the pleasure of the father as he sees his own son walking in his footsteps, aiding him with the work that is his own and the pride that comes with that. As people, we are children of God. Adam specifically is referred to as the son of God in the book of Luke. And so I like imagining Genesis chapter 2 in the same way. God is bringing us into his work. We are cooperating and co-working with God in the domineering and the subjugation and the rule of God's creation. And that includes our creative capacities. That when you engage in productive labor, whatever that is, that God looks at you and he sees himself. God looks at you doing a good job at whatever it is that you're doing, and he says, that's my boy. That's my girl. That is spiritually significant. That productive labor on its own, creative labor on its own, is something that honors God is something that brings God pleasure. That one of the reasons that we work hard is because when we work hard and when we work well, it doesn't matter what you're working in, that pleases God. And in fact, I want to make another point, and I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because especially, at least in my experience, I often run into people who they look at work And they think, if I want to work a job that is spiritually significant, then the way for me to do that is to quit whatever it is I'm currently doing, and let's find a mission field somewhere, or let's find a church that I can pastor, or let's do something that is specifically a spiritual or a ministerial task, because you know what? That is a way for my life to actually matter. You know, when Pastor Roger stands before God, then God's going to be able to reward him for what he did in his nine to five. But when I stand there and all I was doing was flipping burgers, making lattes, or teaching kids at a public school, there's no reward for me, is there? There's a reward for him, but not for me. And that's often the way that I find people approaching work. But that's actually not the way that God approaches work. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 24, Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should stay in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain uh, the opportunity to be free, avail yourself 
For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. And there's a lot of stuff in there that might not seem super applicable to work specifically. Like, I don't know the last time you've ever thought to yourself, do I need to put circumcised on my resume? But the entire point that Paul is making in this passage, and this is in a larger context of marriage and singleness, which he also applies this to, is that when you become a Christian, God's intention for your life is not that I was saved as a hairdresser and now I'm going to go become a missionary. I was saved as an engineer and now I'm going to go become a pastor. God's intention is that you got saved as a hairdresser. Well, you're not going from hairdresser to missionary. You're going from non-Christian hairdresser to Christian hairdresser. You were saved as an engineer. Your, your transition is not from engineer to pastor. Your transition is from non-Christian engineer to Christian engineer. And fill that in with whatever it is you do. And there certainly are circumstances where God might save you and then call you into particular ministry. That happened to my dad. I grew up in a pastor's home. I'd like to be a pastor myself. I don't think that I'm um, an idiot. But each person is specifically gifted in a specific way. And I would also say this. James says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. I've never seen a verse that says, not many of you should become blacksmiths. Not many of you should become engineers. Not many of you should become politicians. But the point that I can make is this. If 5% of Christians were pastors, that would be a tragedy. That would be terrible. If every single faithful Christian that's alive today was working in a specific ministerial context, that would be a tragedy. That would be terrible. And it's not God's intention for the vast majority of Christians. For the vast majority of Christians, God's intention is, I saved you where you are because I want you where you are as a Christian. And the labor that you do there is something that God will specifically reward you for. It's not that if you're working as a pastor, then you get rewarded for that. But if you were faithful to work as a hairdresser, a barista, an engineer, fill in the blank, then God doesn't care about that. No. Productive labor on its own is spiritually valuable, and it brings God pleasure. And you might be thinking to yourself, you know, John, that's a lot of reasoning from Genesis, but it seems kind of thin to me. Uh, are you sure that anyone in the Bible would agree with that? Well, Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. It doesn't limit it to spiritual activities that take place in the workplace. He doesn't say, whatever you do, share the gospel there so that you can have a reward. Not to say that you shouldn't share the gospel there. That's the next point. But it says, whatever you do, whatever it is that God has called you into, being faithful in that environment is something that brings reward. That in a sense, you're working for your boss, but actually you're working for God. 
And there is a genuine reward for that. Not just for pastors, but for every Christian everywhere who is faithful to the task that God has called him to, whatever that task is. So the first thing, and if this is the only thing that you get from this entire message, it's to know that what you do is spiritually significant. That God looks at your work and he is pleased by it when you work hard and when you work well. And it doesn't matter what field that's in. That when you go to work, God is there with you and the Holy Spirit is there to help you to function well in that environment. That when I first learned this lesson, the thing that it encouraged me to do is to pray for my job that I can pray for the success of my employer, that I can pray for my own performance as an employee, that I can pray for discipline, that I can pray for competence, and that God actually wants to answer that prayer because God cares about the fact that I'm doing my job well because he's the one who gave me that job. Additionally, if you view your work as a genuinely spiritual endeavor, and you genuinely have an awareness of the fact that God is with you during your nine to five. That's going to impact things that you do at your work. It's gonna impact things that you don't do at your work. There's gonna be a kind of integrity that you have because you feel the presence of God in every task you do. That's a valuable thing. This changes the way that you go about your work. And doesn't it make your work feel that much more special? It did for me. But not only is it the case that work itself is a spiritually significant activity, but it is also true that work is an avenue for other spiritual activities. That while it is true that the work you do is valuable, it's also not the only valuable thing that you're supposed to be doing in that context. Specifically, I'm going to go through, and these points are going to be much faster, and it's going to be a lot more throwing verses at you, but... The first thing is that work is a context for evangelism. In Philippians 2, 14 to 15, it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted uh, generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Where did Paul get the phrase lights in the world from? Any guesses? Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, that is correct. So Paul is taking what Jesus says about us being the lights of the world, and he is applying it to our interactions with other people on the outside of the church. And where are those interactions going to happen? In 1 Thessalonians 4, 10, and 12, Paul says, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may work, walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. That in your workplace, people who work with you are going to watch the conduct of your life and people who see your work are going to see the conduct of your life. And a really good question to ask is in the context of your work, when God gives you an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, will you be a credible evangelist? Or is someone going to look at the habits you have at work, the way that you complain about your boss just like the rest of us do, the way that you, you fudge your timesheets the way the rest of us do? 
Are they going to look at your conduct and find you a credible evangelist? Because work is the most dominant practice in your life. What do the people around you see of you from how you go about that? Additionally, work is where you have those relationships. I care a lot more about the message delivered to me by a friend than I do the message delivered to me by a stranger on the street. And a work relationship is a fantastic place to build that trust. Helps to be a Christian there. Not only is it the fact that evangelism is something that you're able to accomplish through your work, but it is also true that you are able to serve others in the context of your work. First of all, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved." One of the things that I think about, and in my case, that actually applies directly. I happen to work for a Christian. And so one of the things that I think about is, if I'm going to work and work hard and someone's going to get that profit, I might as well be a Christian that gets rich from it. If someone's going to be gaining notoriety and status and influence, and you have the opportunity to choose that that person be a Christian, that's pretty great. Imagine if all of the executives of the biggest children's entertainment company in the world were committed, integrious people, Christians. That'd be kind of cool. And when you work for a Christian, one of the genuine services that you get to do for your brother in particular and for society at large is making sure that a Christian is more successful than he otherwise would have been were it not for your hard labor that a genuine advantage is made by the fact that you do a good job, not because of the money that you have as income, but because the work you do is good. You get to benefit the people that you work with, you get to benefit the people that you work for by being diligent. And that's spiritually significant. Additionally, Proverbs 10.26 says, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. If you're terrible at your job and you're a lazy worker, you make everyone around you have a harder life. I'd say it's a great aspiration to, if nothing else, have that not be you. (laughs) I'd really like that to not be me. (laughs) So there is a genuine benefit to being good at your job. Additionally, and lastly, as a Christian in the workplace, by being a Christian where you are, one of the spiritually significant things that that accomplishes is the preservation of a society. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, one of the things about salt is that salt is a preservative. Additionally, while I'm sure that you've never eaten a meal that was mostly salt, I am sure that you've tasted foods that tasted like they were mostly salt. Even though salt doesn't make up the majority of that dish that contains it, it certainly has a powerful effect. That even though it is in the minority of the ingredients, its influence is felt everywhere. Christians are the same way. 
when you go into a society, it's not that wherever you go, the majority of people there are Christians. It's not that when you have a meeting of Starbucks baristas, it's not that when you're dealing with a bunch of business executives, it's not that when you're in Congress, that in any one of those locations, the majority of people are Christians, but it should be the case that no matter where you go in a society, no matter the class makeup, no matter the racial makeup, no matter what specific profession is being represented, it's not that the majority of those people will be Christians, but there will be Christians there. Think about the number of situations that may occur where the action of one person can prevent an, an immense evil from taking place in that context. It's not that everywhere you go, all of the people there are very committed to what God says, but everywhere you go, you'll find a Christian there, self-sacrificially and wholeheartedly committed to what God says, you'll find a Christian there who's willing to be that one person. That has a massive influence on a society. If every school you go to, there are Christians on that staff, there are Christians in that student body, Everywhere you go, when there's decisions being made about the entertainment that's made for our children, that not everyone there is a Christian, but there are Christians making those decisions. That influences things. You can be that teacher that didn't teach your students to openly endorse a terrorist organization and scream, gas the Jews at a public protest. That sort of thing is spiritually significant when we are throughout a society and we are actively working to prevent that sort of tragedy in the lives of our children and our people. That's a genuinely incredible thing, and that happens as a byproduct of just being a Christian wherever you are. Additionally, not only is it true that work is an avenue for spiritually significant activity, but it is also true that the income from work is able to be used for spiritually significant things. When you work, you get a paycheck. How do you use that paycheck? Well, one of the ways that you're supposed to use that paycheck from 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living, literally to eat their own bread. God wants you to provide for yourself. When you work, one of the things your income produces is the ability of you to live without having to depend on someone else. That's a genuinely important thing. That's something that God calls us to. You're supposed to pull your weight. But it is also true that there are situations where someone needs help, not because they aren't willing to work, but because life happens. What happens when you get fired from your job because you weren't willing to use someone's preferred pronouns? What happens when you get hit by a car and you might have been able to work, but you can't much work construction without a leg? Those things happen. They happen in the church, they happen in the world. And so another thing that God wants you to do with your income is to care for the needs of others. You're not just supposed to provide for yourself, although you are supposed to provide for yourself, but also in 1 Timothy 5, 8, 
It says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. One of the things God wants you to do with your money is to take care of those around you who need that help. Not because they're lazy and they're not willing to work for themselves. Sometimes the most best and kindest thing for those people is to say, no, I'm not helping you, deal with it. But there are certainly situations where someone is in genuine need, not because of sin, but because of life circumstance. And God calls on us to help with that. That's one of the incredible uses of income. That's one of the reasons that God allows us to get that paycheck. Additionally, in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And one of the things that I should make a point of regarding that, if you are in this room, then you are currently in one of the richest areas of one of the richest states of the richest country in the world. We might not always feel rich compared to everyone else who might live around us, but we are very rich compared to the majority of the world and compared to the majority of people in history. This verse is about every one of us. We are called to share. And even if we weren't rich, there are plenty of other passages that look at people who are not rich and say, share. Like Hebrews 13, 16. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Or perhaps there's the words of John the Baptist, who says, you who have two cloaks, give one to the one who has none. And you who have food for two days, give to the one who does not that even when he looks at those who, what you've got is a meal for today and a meal for tomorrow, he says, share. This isn't just a call for the rich, but it is especially a call for the rich, and that includes us. Now, it's not just that work's income allows you to prepare or pr provide for the needs of other people around you, but it is also true that work allows you to help provide for the work of the ministry that you can contribute to spiritually significant things in addition to the provision of people's needs. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 as we look at this. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 to 18, Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received your gift from Epaphroditus, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That in our lives, there are churches, there are missionaries, that you are able to use your income and that missionary in Zimbabwe is able to feed his kids because of the contribution that you made. There are going to be times in your life when you're looking at your work and you are discouraged by it. 
Perhaps you just don't like what you're doing. Perhaps you don't feel gratified there. You don't feel satisfied there. You don't feel like there's an impact that the tasks themselves are making. And regardless of whether or not that is actually the case, in those moments, it helps to think to myself, I'm doing this right now, and the result of this behavior is that a pastor's family is eating. That a missionary in some African country gets a water filter for his kids. That my work has spiritual significance inherently, even when I don't necessarily feel encouraged by that fact, because I can immediately think to what it's accomplishing beyond the accomplishment of the task, because of what I'm using the income for. And that's significant, and it can get you through a period of discouragement. Additionally, not only is work's income able to be put towards spiritually significant things, but it is also the case that work is meant to be a blessing from God in your life. That work is a source of enjoyment. In Proverbs 13, 4, Solomon writes, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And in Proverbs 22, 29, Solomon says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. That if you work hard and you are good at your job, if you do your work well, the result of that is genuine blessing in your life. It'll bring you places you never could have expected to go, but if you are good at what you do, it changes your life. I have a journal, and on the first page of that journal, I have a line written, the price of freedom is discipline. And it's not to say that that's the most important thing your work does, but it is certainly the case that God has designed his world to reward diligence. That diligence and discipline is a key that opens many doors. And God has made it that way. Additionally, it's not just that work can bring you to good places, but it's also the fact that work itself is able to be a source of enjoyment and should be. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Solomon says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life which God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. It's not wrong to like what you do. It's not wrong to enjoy the fruits of what you do. And that's not the most important thing, but it's certainly a pretty good thing. It's not bad to want a job you like. And so as we're going into the new year, I want to take another look at those things in reverse order, and let's talk about how might you look into this new year and think about how can I go about my work in a way that honors and pleases God? How can I do my work in a way that brings God's blessing into my life? How can I do my work God's way? Well, let's talk about enjoyment. Do you not like your job? I've met some people like that. I've been some people like that. Well, some things that you might do for that. Sometimes what you need is an attitude shift. Do you have a bad attitude towards your boss? Do you hate your boss? Are you bad-mouthing him along with all the other coworkers? 
Do you hate the job? Do you hate the clients? Maybe what you need is an attitude shift. And maybe your job's going to get better after you do that. Additionally, maybe what you're lacking is discipline. Maybe you go to work and you're occupying the space, but you're not actually doing the work. And the reason that you don't like your job is because you're not doing your job. And maybe if you started doing your job, you'd start feeling the fruit and satisfaction of that. Maybe you should work harder at your job. Maybe that helps. Additionally, maybe you've got some tasks you really, really like and some tasks you really, really hate. And if you're in a position where you can delegate, how about you take some of those tasks you hate and give them to someone who doesn't hate them as much and fill your time with the things you do like. Or maybe get your resume in order and you find another job. And again, enjoying your job is not the most important thing. You probably shouldn't quit your lawyer job to go finger painting because I've heard it doesn't pay quite as well. And income does matter. But it's not wrong to actively seek after the ability to like what you do. And you should work on all of these things at once because maybe what you think is that I need to find a different job, but maybe after you start doing some delegating and maybe shift your attitude a bit, you find, wow, this job's actually kind of great. And then you don't want to leave. So work on all of those things at once. It's not wrong to seek after an enjoyable job. That's actually part of God's intention for it. Additionally, think about your income. Am I using my income to support spiritually significant things? Is my income actually accomplishing things that when I'm going through periods in my life where I'm discouraged by what I do, that I can think about the fact I'm clocking in right now and that is contributing to the work of the ministry around the world. What are the things that I might do with my income? How might I structure my budget to allow for those sorts of things? Additionally, how am I doing using my work as an avenue for spiritually significant things? Is there a particular person that you work with who's not a Christian? Are you praying for their salvation? Are you praying that God might give you an opportunity to speak to them? Maybe it'll come up. Are you ordering your life in your workplace so that when God gives you that opportunity, you are a credible evangelist? Is there a Christian in your workplace that you don't go to church with them, you wouldn't have known them if it weren't for the fact that you guys work together, but because you work together, you now have an opportunity to encourage this brother or sister whom you wouldn't have known otherwise? Are you, are you looking for those things? Are there ways in your life that you can look at your job and actively make changes and prioritize the other spiritual activities that your job could be accomplishing? Additionally, do you have a genuine sense that God is pleased when you engage in productive labor? When you go to work, do you feel God with you? Do you feel the Holy Spirit with you, helping you write those contracts, helping you crunch those numbers, helping you read those files? Do you feel God's presence helping you screw in that screw and put that cabinet together? Do you feel a genuine sense that God actually is pleased as he watches a little version of himself engaging in creative behavior? What might you do to increase your sense of that? What might you do to actually think of your work as a spiritually significant activity that God will reward you for? What might you do to light that fire in your bones to embrace and fully engage with exactly what God has called you to be and exactly what God has called you to do? It's the start of a new year. It's as good a time as any. 
Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you that you recognize the fact that you have placed us in often difficult positions, that we do live in a cursed world where as a result of Adam's sin, thorns and thistles come up all around us and we have to eat bread by the sweat of our face. Lord, right now we live in a world that work is cursed. But Lord, just because work is cursed does not mean that there is no good that still exists in it. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to look at the work that you have given us to do and to, to go at it, to work with all our might, to recognize that we are working for you even before we're working for our employer. I pray that you would help us to feel passion and to feel encouraged by all of the things that you still use to bless us in the workplace. Amen.